Well, welcome to Two Cities. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm also the college and young professionals pastor, which is a lot of fun. Uh, college was a huge time for me personally, spiritually. Um, my wife, she actually came to faith in Christ in college. And so we love being able to invest in college students and just pour into their lives. Um, I've been fortunate to be a part of this church from the very beginning. So four years ago, I was living in Chapel Hill and I was working for a campus ministry there called Athletes in Action. And around that time, I had been applying to different PA schools. I had been rejected from a lot. I had been accepted to just one. And I was still waiting to hear back from Wake Forest because I had been waitlisted. And around that time, I took a group of college students to an event that the Summit Church was putting on. And at this event, they encouraged everyone there to ask for God to send you somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And so that night, I went home and I felt really convicted about my lack of prayerfulness about my future. And I prayed, I said, God, I want you to send me to Winston-Salem so that I can be a part of the church plant because I knew that we were planting a church here. And the following day, I got a call saying that I had been accepted, which was awesome. And so I moved to Winston-Salem. As many of you know, our church launched in the fall of 2016, which is when I met my now wife, Olivia. Uh, the way we met was, was at our two-city service. Um, she was greeting on the front steps, and uh, I was looking for a friend of mine's wife that I had only met one time. And so I sort of knew, knew what she looked like, but not really. And so I walked up to Olivia. I said, hey, I said, are, you, are you so-and-so's wife? And she said, no, I'm not married. And I said, oh. <laughs> and so I was head usher at the time. And so I had access to the spreadsheet that we had with everyone's information on it. And so that night I went home and I got Olivia's number. And I sent her a text, and you could say that the rest is history. Um, and I, st I still have access to that spreadsheet, by the way, if anyone needs some help. Um, but in, in all seriousness, Olivia and I, we love this church. We love this city. We are just so excited about all that God is doing here, and we're just glad to be a part of it. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you're new, the last four weeks, we have been reading about Abraham. We've been going through the book of Genesis and reading about the life of Abraham. And Abraham is mentioned a lot throughout the Bible. And pretty much every time Abraham is mentioned, he's used as an example of a man who lived by faith, by a man who trusted God. And so in Acts 7, when Stephen is trying to illustrate faith, he uses Abraham as an example. In Romans 4, when Paul is trying to illustrate faith, he uses Abraham as an example. Abraham's faith is referenced in James, in Galatians, and in Hebrews chapter 11, which is where we're going to dive in today. So Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. And in this chapter, we read about the faith of a handful of different heroes of the Old Testament, like Abel and Noah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Samson. All of them are mentioned, but none of them get as much attention as Abraham does in this chapter. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, I love this passage, but I really love the first four words that say, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Now, if you've been here recently, you've heard a handful of definitions of faith. You heard a couple weeks ago that faith is taking God at his word and taking your next step. Now, I love that definition. It's a wonderful definition. Another definition is found in Hebrews 11, verse 1, where it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so what this is saying is that faith is having confidence in the promises of God, that we as Christians are called to have a lot of faith in things that we have never seen. We've never seen Jesus. We've never seen heaven. We've never seen hell. We've never seen any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. We've never seen any of the author's of the Bible, but based on the evidence that we do have that Jesus is who he said he was, we are called to have faith. Probably my favorite definition of faith is from J.I. Packer, who is a theologian in his 90s now. He's from England. He says that faith is self-abandoning hope in the person and work of Jesus. I love the definition. Faith is self-abandoning hope in the person and work of Jesus. And so what will sustain the Christian in life is genuine faith, self-abandoning hope that Jesus is who he said he was and that his promises will prove to be true. Now, I really think that one of the main reasons that we have Hebrews 11 and the example of Abraham's faith is that God wants to use these examples of faith to encourage us. Now, I want you to think about this. Have you ever been really encouraged by someone else's faith? A couple of years ago, three years ago, actually, I, was, uh, I went on a mission trip with three of my best friends. And we went to Mongolia, which is a country that's landlocked between China and Russia. And there's not really a lot going on there. It's a pretty empty country. And so what we were doing on this mission trip is we would go around to different areas and we would share the gospel with, with people. We would give out Bibles afterwards. And that's pretty much what we did. And one morning, we drove out to the prison, to, to a prison that was four hours outside of the capital city. And we got to the prison, and we didn't really know exactly what to expect. We knew that we were probably going to get to speak with some of the prisoners, but we didn't know exactly what it would look like. We didn't know the details. And so there was a group of seven of us in our group. And so the seven of us walked into a room about the size of this room, maybe a little bit smaller, and there was nobody there. And slowly, the prisoners just started to trickle in. They, they were all in orange jumpsuits. And the prisoners just kept coming, and they kept coming, and they kept coming, and they kept coming. And after a little while, I started to feel pretty anxious about this situation because I looked around me and I saw us seven in our group I saw about three guards who didn't have guns. All that they had was batons, which I didn't think would be very helpful if needed. And I looked around me and I saw what ended up being around 400 prisoners, 400 male prisoners in this tiny little room. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if these guys want to rip us all limb from limb, and that's probably what's going to happen here, unfortunately. Um, and so I walked over to my friend Anderson, and I was feeling really anxious and unsettled. And I said, Anderson have you noticed that there are a lot more of them than there are of us? And Anderson looked back at me, and I will never forget what he said to me. In the most confident and calm tone you can imagine, he just said, trust God. Trust God. 
And immediately when he said that, I felt both convicted and I felt encouraged. I felt convicted by my lack of faith in that situation. I really felt like he was rebuking me. And honestly, he probably should have been rebuking me for my lack of faith in that situation. But I also felt so encouraged because in my friend Anderson, I could see this is what it looks like to trust God. This is what it looks like to have self-abandoning hope in the person and the work and the sovereignty of Jesus. In Anderson's example of faith, encouraged me then and it still encourages me today. And I really think that the passage that we are reading in Hebrews should have the same effect on us. Now, a way that you can apply this is if you have been encouraged by someone else's faith, I want to encourage you, please tell them that. You know, if that's how, you know, people are encouraged if they know that you have been encouraged by them. Um, So maybe you could say, hey, you know, I've been really encouraged seeing how you've trusted God during this difficult season with your kids. Or you could say, I've been so encouraged to see how you've been trusting God in your singleness. Or maybe you could say, I've been so encouraged by seeing how you and your family have been trusting God through this really difficult medical situation that your family's been going through. Regardless of what it is, if you have been encouraged by someone else's faith, please tell them that so that they too will be encouraged. Let's pick back up in verse 8. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So this verse is referencing Genesis chapter 12, which we covered a couple weeks ago, where God comes to Abraham and he says, Go from your country to a land that I will show you, and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to others. And the Bible says that Abraham gathers all of his belongings He gathers his family, and he just leaves. He is obedient to God, and he just leaves. Now, I want to really camp out here because I feel like we really see such a, just a foundational truth in the life of Abraham, and that is that internal faith will lead to external obedience. Internal faith will lead to external obedience. Now, I want to talk about obedience for a minute, but first I want to lay a little bit of groundwork just to make sure that we're all on the same page. No one is saved by their obedience. No one is saved by their good works. Nobody is saved by their good deeds. Nobody is saved by attending church regularly. The Bible makes this clear over and over and over. It says in Romans 4.20, it says, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith. And then it goes on to say, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that Abraham's obedience was counted to him as righteousness, but that his faith is what was counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes on in Romans 5, 1, and says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what justified means is to be forgiven and accepted as righteous. And so when Paul says we have been justified by faith, what he is saying is that because of our faith, because of our self-abandoning hope in the personal work of Jesus, we are therefore justified. We are forgiven and accepted as righteous. And so we are justified not by our obedience, but we are justified by faith. But as we see in this passage, faith will lead to obedience. Now, I feel like often we have a misunderstanding of God when it comes to his desire for us to be obedient. I really feel like oftentimes we think that God just wants us to behave and he wants us to keep all the rules and he doesn't want us to enjoy anything or have any fun and the Bible is just a list of rules that we have to follow. But that is just not consistent with the character of God. 
I heard someone say this in college, and it was huge for me when I heard it. And ever since I heard, heard this, I've just been saying this on repeat over and over. I feel like I say this every other week at community group. And that is that every single command from God in the Bible is about God inviting you in to joy. Every single time that God says, do this, or, or don't do this, it is about God inviting you into life. He's trying to line you up with how he designed things to work. And so whenever the Bible says, don't do this, it is not that doing what God doesn't want you to do and rebelling against God is gonna lead you to some kind of secret joy that God doesn't want you to take part in. It's destructions that way, death is this way, so come this way, this is the way to life. It says in Proverbs 14, it says that uh, there is a way that seems right to man and in the end it leads to death. And it says in Psalm 16, 11, it says, you have made known to me the path of life. Psalm 16, 7 says, the boundaries or the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And so in Christianity, we believe, yes, God does draw lines. Yes, there are boundaries, but those boundaries are meant to lead me into flourishing, lead me into life as God designed it to be. You know, other, other religions will say, you know, obedience to God will lead to relationship with God. Whereas Christianity says relationship with God is given freely as a gift and out of that relationship will lead to obedience. And so the question to consider is in what area of your life do you need to take obedience to God more seriously? Maybe it's baptism. Maybe some of you, whenever someone on this stage mentions baptism, you just tense up a little bit on the inside because you know that what God has called you to do is to take that step of obedience by making your own public profession of faith through baptism. Maybe some of you need to be more obedient with your resources. You know, we as believers are called to be generous stewards of what God has given us. And, you know, we're, yes, we are called to be obedient and be generous with our money, but we are called to be generous with so much more than our money. We're called to be generous with our time, with our energy, with your house, with your car. Like, we are called to be a generous people. Some of you need to be uh, taking God's word more seriously and taking obedience more seriously when it comes to sexual restraint, Pretty often, I'll be sitting across the table from a college student, usually at Chick-fil-A or something, and we will be talking about the idea of sexual temptation. And what I say to them is true for everyone in this room, and that is that you are going to have to show self-control sexually for the rest of your life. It is not that once you get married, you're just going to have to, you're going to be free and you're not going to have to show self-control in that area. If anything, the stakes are probably going to be even higher once you get married. And I really believe that young men need to lead the way in this. Young men need to take some initiative, need to set some boundaries, and need to stick to those boundaries. I love how in Titus 2, Paul is addressing a handful of different ages and stages. And Paul says, well, he addresses, he addresses older men, he addresses older women, and then he addresses younger men. He says, older men should be sober-minded, dignified, sound in faith, self-controlled, and so on. He says, older women should be pure, teaching younger women, be kind, and so on. And then he gets to younger men, and he only has one encouragement, self-control. 
that, that so many problems in the life of a young man would be solved if you would just show some self-control. The Bible says, I think it's in Proverbs, that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, which is not a good place to be. And so some of you in here need to take obedience to God more seriously in this area. Maybe it's missions. Maybe God is calling some of you to be obedient by going on a short-term mission trip. Maybe he's calling some of you to consider moving somewhere long-term. For some of you, obedience to God might be considering going, on a, going with one of the church plants and making a two-year commitment to them. You know, regardless of what it is, we are called to be obedient to God's word and what he asks of us. And my encouragement to you is as the scriptures reveal to you disobedience, that you would submit to God's commands and trust that doing so is going to lead you into joy. Pretty often, or I guess weekly, Olivia and I will be cooking dinner at our house after work. And sometimes she'll do most of the cooking. Sometimes I'll do most of it. It depends on the day. And afterwards, of course, there are always pots and pans that need to be cleaned up. After I've worked all day, my deepest desire is not to get up and, and clean the dishes. And this actually can be a point of tension in our relationship, historically speaking. Um, what, what, what I want to do is I want to just sit on the couch and scroll through social media. But, but what has God called me to do as Olivia's husband? God has called me to love my wife. He has called me to serve her. He has called me to sacrificial love. And so in this situation, Obedience for me means getting up and doing the dishes. That, doing that is what will ultimately lead to joy and flourishing. Sitting on the couch is a cheap, momentary joy that will be gone in an instant. And so we are called to let our faith drive us to obedience. Let's go back to verse 8 again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So what we see here is that God tells Abraham to go, but he, he doesn't tell him where he's going. Now, can you imagine what this probably would have been like for his neighbors? His neighbors probably saw Abraham packing up all of his things, gathering his family, and leave and leaving. This had to be just baffling to the outsider. But what we see here is that despite the uncertainty... Despite the unknown, Abraham obeys God and he goes. Abraham had a clear calling from God, even though he had an unclear direction. And so the, the big truth that we see here is that the believer will often know God's call, but not the details. The believer will often know God's call, but not the details. Christian Cook, who was a member of our church that many of you know, he, about a year ago, he felt like God was calling him to leave Winston-Salem and move to Brooklyn with a church that was being planted there. And six months ago, what Christian did is he, he left his job, he sold his car, and he was obedient and he went to Brooklyn. There were so many unknowns for Christian when he left. He didn't know, he didn't have a job when he left. He didn't know what kind of friends he was going to have. Um, he told me a couple weeks ago, he didn't realize that since he didn't have a car anymore, he was going to have to carry his groceries home from the grocery store every time he gathered groceries, which he said was the worst part of being in Brooklyn. Um, you know, but despite all the unknowns, Christian was obedient to God, and he left. 
Steve and Lena Goff, who are members of our church who have been serving as missionaries in Southeast Asia for the last two years or so. They, I spoke with them and they shared that they had so many things that were unknown prior to leaving. They had financial unknowns. They didn't know if they were going to be able to afford a car because the area that they were moving into, the taxes on the cars were just astronomical. They had a lot of housing unknowns. They didn't realize that for the first five or six months, they were probably going to live, or they actually did, they had to live in an apartment that was just super, super small with two young kids. They had tons of unknowns with their children. When they left and moved to Southeast Asia a couple years ago, they had a four-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. They didn't know how their kids were going to respond to the culture. They didn't know if they were going to be able to make any friends. Steve and Lena didn't know if they were going to have other groups of parents that they could rely on or, or lean on. And I talked with Steve, and Steve told me that, you know, despite all the unknowns, the main unknown that they had was the question of, what is this really going to look like for us? They had an idea in their mind of what being missionaries would be like, but they really had no idea what reality was going to be like for them. And so despite the uncertainty, they were obedient, they had faith, they trusted God, and they left. So you may hear this and say, well, well how do I hear, how do I know what God is calling me to? How do I know God's will? You know, I want God to speak to me, but I don't know how to hear his voice. And whenever I hear someone say that, my response is always that you cannot know the will of God any more than you know the word of God. You cannot know the will of God any more than you know the word of God. Yes, God can speak to you a lot of different ways. He can speak to you through other people. He can speak to you in your spirit. He can speak to you in your circumstances. He can speak to you through the church. But the primary way that God speaks to his people is through the written down word of God. And so some of you in here are trying to make a decision between two options, and you want to know what God's will is, but you only open your Bible once a week at community group. And so the idea of trying to hear God's voice without actively reading the Bible, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, some of you have paralysis by analysis. You're waiting for a warm and fuzzy feeling about a decision and you're just trying to figure out what God's will is for your life before you, you do it. But God's will for your life is not lost. We have the promises of God. Just to list off a couple, Philippians 4.19 says, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. James 1.5, I will give you wisdom for every new challenge. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you so that you can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isaiah 41.10 says, I will be with you and strengthen you and help you. Psalm 32.8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So what we are called to do is we are called to make decisions that are consistent with what we know about God and know about his character. Growing up, whenever my family would go to a restaurant, it would drive my dad crazy if the waiter came to take our order and I didn't know what I wanted. So when the waiter would come, my dad would never say to the waiter, just, just give us just a couple more minutes and we'll be ready. He would always look at me and he would say, make a decision. And over, over the years, I learned to make a decision. Some of you in here need to make a decision. You need to pray about it. You need to discuss it with Christian community. That's important. You need to make sure that it's consistent with what we see in God's word. And then you need to move. You need to make a decision. You need to do something.
That is what we are called to do. You need to decide what best reflects the character of God and then move. And then as you move, you should trust God to protect you with the decision that you made. Let's go to verse nine. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So what we see here is that Abraham is called by God to leave his home, and by faith he goes. But what we see is that for the rest of his life, Abraham was living in tents. He was a nomad or a foreigner forever. And in all of Abraham's life, God never actually gave Abraham the promised land. It says in Acts 7-5, it says, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. And so even though Abraham was in the promised land and he prospered there, he was still just living there as a foreigner for the rest of his life. And the big truth that we see here is that the life of faith will produce patience. What patience is, is patience is the ability to wait and endure without ever entering into possession. What we see in the life of Abraham is that the life of faith enjoys some measure of God's reward now, but not most of it. William Carey, who we heard a little bit about last week, he was one of the first missionaries to India. So in 1793, William Carey gathered his family. They got on a boat, they sailed from England to India, and they lived there for 35 years as missionaries. William Carey was there for seven years before he saw one person converted to Christianity. He was there 35 years as a missionary, and he really didn't see much spiritual fruit at all when he was there during his lifetime. And if that were me, you know, if if I were there three or four years and nobody had become a Christian yet, I would be very seriously doubting whether or not God had really called me there. You know, God, why have you called me to this place to be a missionary if you know, nobody's becoming a Christian. But what we know is that what William Carey was doing those 35 years he was in India is that he was translating the Bible into different Indian dialects. And what we know is that thousands and thousands of Indians have come to faith in Christ through missionary efforts that used William Carey's translations. And so just like Abraham, William Carey understood the patience of faith. And we see in verse 10, the secret of Abraham's patience. It says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The reason that Abraham was patient is because he was looking for heaven. Abraham knew exactly where he was headed. The last verse in the book of Ezekiel is Ezekiel 48, verse 35. And it's talking about heaven. And it says that the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. And so for the believer, focusing on the reality that at some point you will be in the city where the Lord is there, you will be in his presence, that reality will allow you to be patient today despite your circumstances. Let's go to verse 11. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So in Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham that he and Sarah are going to conceive. 
And the Bible tells us that when God tells them this, Abraham laughs in disbelief for a couple of reasons. One, they had never been able to conceive up to this point. And two, they were so old. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. And we read in Genesis 18 that Sarah also laughs in disbelief when, when she is told this. And Sarah, it, it says this in Genesis 18. You can read this. She basically says, my reproductive years are over. And then to which God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh about this? Is anything too hard for the Lord? But we know that at some point, both Abraham and Sarah had faith that they would conceive. And the big idea here is that the life of faith trusts God to do what we are powerless to do. Now, we know this is true. I know that this is terrifying to some of you. But if we were to make a list of the things in your life that you have complete control over, and then make another list of the things in your life that you really don't have much control over at all, the things in your life that you don't really control it would be so much longer than the things that you do control. And what we see in verse 11 is that the correct biblical response to the reality that we are powerless is faith. It's, trust, it's trusting God. Elizabeth Elliot, she was an author and a speaker who passed away a couple of years ago. And she wrote this quote on the idea of trusting the sovereignty of God. She says this, God is the God of human history. And he is at work continuously, mysteriously, accomplishing his eternal purposes in us, through us, for us, and in spite of us. Cause and effect are in God's hands. Is it not the part of faith to simply let them rest there? God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. You see, what Elizabeth Ellie understood is that in view of God's sovereignty, that what we are called to do as believers is to leave cause and effect in God's hands. A couple years ago, I was on a flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg, South Africa, which was a pretty long flight. And about halfway into the flight, we were completely over the Atlantic Ocean. And we started to go through some absolutely terrible turbulence. Now, I'm talking like the flight attendants need to sit down. You know, people are spilling their Cokes everywhere, and it's just a mess. And, you know, normally, I'm not the kind of, I normally don't get very anxious about turbulence. But in this situation, I was feeling anxious about the turbulence. I mean, it was really unsettling for me. And as I was sitting there, my head was just sort of bobbing from side to side. You know, I was sort of thinking about how to deal with this. Um, I, I thought back on a sermon that I had heard just a couple months prior on this topic, on the idea of God's sovereignty and our lack of control. And I realized in that moment, you know, I, I don't have any control over the weather. I don't have any control over what the pilot does. Really, the, the only reasonable option I have here is to, to just trust God and just say, you know, God, if, if you... If you want this plane to go down, then unfortunately, you know, I guess that's your will, and I'm just going to be going down with this plane. Um, but, you know, this is what we are called to do. We are, trust, we are called to trust in the sovereignty of God. There are two ways to respond to your lack of control. One of those is worry and anxiety, and the other is faith and trust. And in this passage about Sarah, what God is calling us to do is to trust him with things that we are powerless to do. So how you can apply this is, you know, God is calling every believer to initiate spiritual conversations with your coworkers, with your family, 
with your friends, with your neighbors. But what we have to do is we have to trust God with those results because there are certain things that only God can do. Only God can save people. Only God can convict people of sin. Only God can open up someone's eyes to belief. None of those things we have the power to do. And so we have to do our part in being faithful and presenting gospel truths to the people that we are around. And then we have to trust God with those results. For parents and grandparents, you have to trust God with your kids. You know, yes, you should plug your kids into gospel-saturated community. Yes, you should be involved. Yes, you should pray for your children, of course. But at the end of the day, you have to just trust God with your kids because there's so many things about their lives that you have no control over. For college and high school students, you have to trust God with your future. You should definitely work hard. You should definitely take advantage of the opportunities that God has given you. But at the end of the day, you have to trust God with whether or not you get into the grad school you wanna go to or the college that you really are just dying to get into. You have to trust God with your future relationships. And I really know that, honestly, all of us want to be in control. But thank goodness we aren't in control. Because if you and I were in control, we would make a mess of things. I mean, we really would. I mean, we would make terrible, terrible gods. I heard a quote before. I'm not sure exactly who said it. He said that if God were to concede me his omnipotence, so if God were to give me his power for 24 hours, I would make many changes in the world. But if God were to give me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. You see, the life of faith trusts God to do what we are powerless to do. Let's go to verse 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So this verse is saying that Abraham was as good as dead. Abraham was old. But despite of his old age, because of his faith and because of his obedience, he would have countless descendants. And the entire Jewish people would flow from Abraham. You can go to the Gospels and you can read the genealogies directly from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And Jesus, just like Abraham, Jesus was one man. But unlike Abraham, Jesus was the God-man. Jesus was truly God and truly man. We see that Abraham appeared to be as good as dead. If you were to look at Abraham in his old age, you would think there is no way that, that this old man could produce new life. There is no way that this man is gonna have countless descendants. But despite his old age, he would have countless descendants, as many as the grains of sand by the seashore. And Jesus didn't appear to be as good as dead on the cross. Jesus was completely dead on the cross. If you were to look at Jesus hanging on the cross, bloodied, beaten, you would think there is no way that anything good could come out of this situation. You would think there is no way that what just happened here could in any way produce new life. But what we know is that despite the fact that Jesus died on the cross, He rose from the dead, which secured the salvation of countless spiritual descendants that he would ultimately adopt into his family. You see, what Jesus offers to those who have faith is not just forgiveness. He doesn't offer just acceptance. He offers forgiveness, he offers acceptance, and he offers adoption to those who have faith. 
We read about Abraham's obedience, but Jesus was the ultimate example of obedience. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the big idea here is because of Jesus' obedience, you can be reconciled to God through faith. Because of Jesus' obedience, you can be reconciled to God through faith. Now, if you're here for any length of time at all, you probably hear us use the word gospel. You see, what the gospel is, is that God is holy, and God is righteous, and God is perfect, and he is blemishless, and God is just. And man, you and me, we are not holy. We are not righteous. And our sin separates us from a just and holy God who demands that our sin be punished. A just God demands that sins be judged. And at the end of your life, you will stand before a just and holy God and you will be judged. You will be judged either on the basis of your righteousness or you'll be judged based on the righteousness of another. You see, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. And then as we see here in Philippians 2, Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That out of love, Jesus voluntarily died the death that you and I deserve on the cross in the place of anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he had overcome sin and death so that anyone who places faith in him would be reconciled to God forever. And so the question to consider today is, do you have faith? Do you have self-abandoning hope in the person and work of Jesus? You see, this passage about Abraham, it's, it's an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to go all in with Jesus. It's an invitation to trust in Jesus alone for your righteousness and for your salvation. Some of you need to do that today. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor in the 1900s. He wrote this on faith. He said, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, ah, yes, I used to commit terrible sins and I have done this and that. If he goes on saying that, he has not got faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a man say, yes, I have sinned grievously. I've lived a life of sin, yet I know that I'm a child of God because I'm not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ and God has put that to my account. And so may we be a church that is marked by faith. May we be a church that is committed 
to trusting God and trusting his promises. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of faith that we see in the life of Abraham. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are trying to decide between two things. Lord, would you speak to them through your word and by your spirit? Would you give them clarity? And then would you give them the courage to make a decision, to take a step of faith and and to trust you? Lord, I pray for those in this room who need to trust you for their salvation. Lord, may that be today. Lord, we need your help to be obedient. Help us to be a people who who trusts you, who is obedient to you and your word, and who desires to share the good news of the gospel to all those who are around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.